Our scripture focus is found in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 9:26 through chapter 10, verse 1, and chapter 10, verses 9 through 16. They got up early, and just before dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Get up, and I will send you on your way. Saul got up, and both he and Samuel went outside. As they were going down to the edge of the city, Saul said to, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to go on ahead of us, but you stay for a while, and I'll reveal the word of God to you. So the servant went on. Samuel took a flask of oil, poured it on Saul's head, kissed him, and said, Hasn't the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? When Saul turned around to leave Samuel, God changed his heart. And all the signs came about that day. When Saul and his servant arrived at Gibeah, a group of prophets met him. Then the, ser- the Spirit of God came powerfully on him, and he prophesied along with them. Everyone who knew him previously and saw him prophesy with the prophets, prophets asked each other, What has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Then a man who was from there asked, Who is their father? As a result, is Saul also among the prophets became a popular saying. Then Saul finished prophesying and went to the high place. Saul's uncle asked him and his servant, Where did you go? To look for the donkeys, Saul answered. When we saw they weren't there, we went to Samuel. Tell me, Saul's uncle asked him, What did Samuel say to you? Saul told him, He assured us the donkeys had been found. However, Saul did not tell him what Samuel had said about the matter of kingship. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Awesome. Let me encourage you to grab your Bibles, turn them open to 1 Samuel chapter 10 to the portion of Scripture that was just read for us, 1 Samuel chapter 10, as we continue our journey through this book. You know, the motif of life being a journey, uh, that is a motif that, that many of us are familiar with. People talk about it a lot in our society, in our culture, that life is a journey, and we like to account for the different steps along our journey. But this is also a motif that is quite common in Scripture. It is one that pops up and is pronounced in many different ways all throughout the Bible. You consider Abraham. Abraham was called to, to a journey when the Lord moved him from Ur and was leading him towards the promised land or leading him towards the land that the Lord would give him. And then you have Moses, who was called to take a journey and leading the people of Israel out of bondage and slavery in Egypt and leading them through a journey in the wilderness up to the promised land. You think about the journey Jesus called his disciples on when he looked at them and said, hey guys, follow me and I'll make you become fishes of men. And they had the joy of journeying with Jesus through Galilee and Judea, just serving the kingdom of God in a myriad of ways, learning more about the salvation that God would provide and as a journey with Jesus along the way. But then, of course, Jesus was on a journey. He entered the world to that where his life would lead him to Jerusalem, where his life would be given on a cross and he would die for our 
sins. Then you consider the journey that was embarked upon in the book of Acts when Jesus told his disciples to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations and to uh, plant churches all over the world. And, and so the disciples were told, okay, sit tight because you can't do that until the Holy Spirit comes. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he's going to lead you on a journey to do what I've called you to do. So this motif of a life being a journey is quite common. Even when you get into 1 Peter, one of, the most, one of my favorite descriptions of the Christian life is one of, that, that a Christian is one who is an exile or a sojourner, that a Christian is someone who doesn't make their home in this world, that we are moving through the world that is en route to the world that is to come. Life is a journey. This, this is a reality because each and every one of us have been born outside of Eden. A journey is what life becomes outside of the place that God originally intended us to be. That we're not quite home yet. The world as it is isn't right, which is why so many of us feel alienated in all sorts of ways, which is why so many of us do not feel comfortable or at home in the world as it currently stands And a human being's deepest desires, although many people do not recognize it as such, but a human being's deepest desire is to return home, is for their journey to lead them back to God's presence where they might dwell amongst God's people in God's place. In other words, a human being's deepest desire is for the kingdom of God. Because one way to understand God's kingdom and what it's all about, it Uh, An easy way to think about it is that the kingdom of God is God's presence among God's people in God's place. This is where the Bible began in Eden, God's place. God's presence there, fellowshipping with Adam and Eve as they walked with him and talked with him and enjoyed each other in that kingdom. But then you know that sin entered and sin interrupted thing and all of a sudden life began a journey. But for many of us, we don't quite know where we're going. Our deepest desires is to return to that dynamic, but our deepest desires are, but our familiar desires are a bit distorted and disjointed. And so many of us pull up short of the destination that our desires and that our calling is leading us to. For many of us, our our, our journey doesn't end in God's place, amongst God's people, enjoying God's presence. Our, Our journey can There's a temptation and a threat for our journeys to stop short of that. We consider the signposts that are all around us in creation, whether it be the human conscience, whether it be the beauty and the wonder of planet Earth that we are living on right now, whether whether it be the deep desires that we have to to love and to be loved and to know and to be known, those, those signposts that are designed to point us in God's direction, those signposts for many of us, can become tombstones, especially if we ignore them and we don't look in the direction that they are calling us us to. Now, a tragic illustration of this is found in the story of a man named Lot and his wife when they were called to leave a city known as Sodom and Gomorrah and return to the place where God would rule and reign, to return amongst God's people in God's place where they might be better connected with God's presence. But as they were leaving Sodom and Gomorrah, we're told that Lot's wife, she turned and looked back, and and she did so in such a way that demonstrated her heart's fondness belonged there. And and as she turned and looked there, she, she stopped short. And all of a sudden, the signpost, this calling from God to flee Sodom and Gomorrah and go to where Abraham was, that signpost became her 
tombstone as she looked back and her fate was wrapped up in the fate of that city where her heart belonged. And things didn't end well for her. Well, that tragic illustration is, is a common, is a story that often repeats itself in many people's lives where we see the signposts of creation becoming tombstones where we stop short of where they are leading us to, we stop short of where they are to take us. And when you consider the story that we're looking at today, the story of Saul, we're going to find another tragic example of this. Another tragic illustration is found in the story of Saul, this, the, the first man who was anointed to be the king of Israel. And, and as king, he was, in, him, in a sense, he was to become a type of signpost pointing people in God's direction, leading the people of Israel to be about what God was about in the world. But but that signpost would become his tombstone, as you will see over the course of the next few weeks, that, that he did not faithfully discharge his position. He did not faithfully carry out his calling, and things go really bad for him, and things get really bad for the people of Israel. But let's look first at what goes down at the start of this this portion of his story. When we first meet Saul, he's a man on a journey. He and his servant, if you recall last week from Pastor Mark's message, they, they set out to find his dad's donkeys. That's, that's what they set out to do. That was their intention and their ambition, but you know as well as I do. Proverbs 16, 9, many are the plans in a man's heart, but the Lord determines his steps. And with every step, Saul took on this mundane search. It would be steered by providence to where God wanted him to be. And this mundane search for donkeys led to a magnificent moment where Saul would meet the prophet Samuel. And Samuel would become a keynote signpost in his life as Samuel would point Saul in God's direction, saying, look, God is about to do something in you. He's about to put you in a position that hasn't been filled before, but a position that he wants you to handle a certain kind of way. So you consider what Samuel would say to Saul. Look at verse 27 of chapter 9. As they were going down to the edge of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to go on ahead of us, but you stay for a while and I'll reveal the word of God to you. I love that phrase. Samuel saying, I'm going to reveal the word of God to you. He's essentially saying, hey, you think your journey is about one thing, but I'm about to tell you it's about something altogether different. Because that's what the word of God does. The word of God brings clarity. When God begins to speak, he he opens our eyes to see things as they actually are. And so we live most of our lives thinking life is about one thing, but then we're confronted with the word of God and suddenly we discover life is about something altogether different. Each and every one of us have a different vision of what the good life is. We think we know what life is to be about. Many of us perhaps set out on a journey through this world thinking, okay, life for me is about getting married or life for me is about attaining this certain job or achieving this certain career or life for me is about having kids or life for me is about doing X or doing Y or doing Z. And we begin to embark upon this journey thinking we're on a search for donkeys, thinking we're doing something entirely earthly, but then the word of God comes and blows the lid off of that and says, look, your life is about so much more. Your life isn't about earthly acquisitions. Your life isn't about earthly attainments and earthly accomplishments. Your life is about something eternal. And so the word of God would come to Samuel saying, hey, you think your life is about this, but God's about to show you it should be about something altogether different. 
And this is the story of faith. This is the Christian life that we are living when we hear Jesus saying, hey, follow me and I'll make you become fishes of men. He's saying, look, I'm going to show you what your life is to be about. Right now, you think it's about this, but God wants you to know it's about something altogether different. It's about something eternal. It's about something substantial. It's about something that lasts far beyond the earthly acquisitions and the earthly accomplishments that we so often get caught up in as we are journeying through this this life. And so the word of God would come to Saul and, and clarify what his life is to be about. And for Saul, that meant he's going to step into a unique role. He's going to fill a position that has yet to be filled as he would soon be anointed king. And this is what happens as you keep reading through the passage, as you see Saul's anointing. Check out chapter 10, verse 1. As Samuel is communicating the word of God to Saul, telling him what his life is about, he says in verse 1 of chapter 10, Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on Saul's head, kissed him, and said, Hasn't the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? Now, if you're reading perhaps the English Standard Version, you're going to see more words there. The ESV has a, has a little bit more, uh, has more words on verse 1. This is what the ESV says. The ESV says, it continues, And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his inheritance. Now, that portion isn't found in the CSB, which is what I'm reading from today. Now, I point that out because some of you are confused uh, if you're reading from the ESV and wondering, well, why didn't he say this? Well, because CSB doesn't include that, but here's the deal. This is an example of what's called a textual variant, and there are a few examples of this in the scriptures where our oldest manuscripts and our most reliable manuscripts from which our English translations are derived, they, they may differ from one another slightly in certain spots like this. And I mention it now because we are a church that takes the Bible seriously and we don't duck and dodge these types of dynamics. And, but the thing about the textual variance, there's about 95% consistency between the oldest and most reliable manuscripts that we have of the Bible that are translated from Hebrew and Greek into English. About 95% consistency, which is unheard of when you think about ancient documents like what we're, we're, we're like the scriptures. And even if there is 5% variance amongst the manuscripts or something somewhere along those lines, even with that said, there's not a single textual variant like this that matters. <laughs> there's not a single variant that changes the message of the scriptures. There's not a single difference that's going to uh, affect what we know to be true about who God is and who Jesus is and who we are and what salvation is and what salvation is all about. There's nothing changes in light of this. I just point it out because you may be wondering as you're reading through this passage. So whether you include those words or not, uh, the ESV, CSB, the point is the same. Saul's being anointed king. And he's being anointed for Israel's sake. This isn't a role that he campaigned for. This isn't a role that he originally sought after and pursued because he thought, you know, that would look really good on my resume. No, this is just the Lord doing, bringing Saul to this moment and calling him to be Israel's first king. Now, as he steps into this role, he's to serve the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of self. And this will be the great tension that Saul will experience throughout the rest of his story. Am I going to be about 
God and his kingdom or, are gonna, or am I going to be about me and my mini kingdom? And that tug of war, uh, that tension that Saul's going to feel over the course of the next several weeks is a tension that you and I are very familiar with. This is why Saul is probably more like us than we realize. And although we have a tendency to demonize Saul and to, and to get mad at Saul or hold Saul up as a bad guy, there's a lot about his story that's gray and ambiguous because there's a lot about our stories that is gray and ambiguous. And this tug of war between, am I going to be about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of self? That's a tension we all feel. And, and this is one that Saul will certainly feel too. Now, you look back at the passage, there's some question about the word prince or ruler that's in that verse. Um, there's some who say, well, maybe he wasn't being anointed king in this moment. There's some scholars who conclude that. There's other scholars who say, no, that word implies kingship. I kind of fall on that side of things. I believe this is Saul's anointing to be king. Um, and the reason for that, or there, there's several reasons for that. I think the term implies it, but also think this is how Israel sees him in the next chapters. They're going to see him and treat him as a king. And so what's happening in this moment is that the Lord is giving Israel what they've asked for, what they've desired. They said, give us a king like all the other nations have. And the Lord is now giving them over to that desire and things are not going to go well for Israel because of it. As Mark pointed out a couple of weeks ago, the people of Israel were, reject were rejecting God being their direct king. They now wanted an indirect king. They wanted someone else. And so with this anointing and with this calling, there is a certain expectation that the Lord is going to have for Saul, and it's the same expectation he has for David and Solomon and all the other Old Testament kings, that as a king or ruler of the people of Israel, they are to, uh, yes, rule over God's people, but remain under God's presence. Over the people, under God's presence, as, as illustrated by the anointing with the oil being poured on top of, of Saul's head. There's a great picture of this also just drawn from Egyptian history when you consider how kings were anointed in Egypt and the pharaohs were anointed and the, and the vassal kings were anointed under their dominion. One scholar points this out. He says, in Egyptian culture, it was, a custom to, it was the custom to anoint vassal kings, that is, minor kings who owed allegiance to the great king of Egypt. And he writes, in this light, we may see the king of Israel, not as a king in his own right, but as the vassal of Yahweh, who is envisioned as the true king of Israel. So Saul, David, and all the other kings that are going to come up in the Old Testament, they are to reign over God's people, but under God's presence. And when things go bad for Israel, it's when their kings try to get out from under God's presence. And their reign and their rule is no longer governed by the scriptures or governed by God's word. They're not listening to Samuel and Isaiah and Ezekiel and the prophets that would speak God's word. They're not paying attention to that. And so they would usurp God's presence over them and things would not go well. And so in this regard, Saul was to be a signpost pointing everyone to God's rule and reign, that he himself was to be under God's presence. And if the king is under God's presence, then the people are there too. And that's a good place to be. And so he's supposed to call everyone's attention to that dynamic. That's his responsibility. That's the expectation that the Lord would have of him. But then you keep moving from his anointing to his affirmation. As Samuel continues to speak to Saul about this role he's going to play out, he, he affirms him in verses 2 through 10. That God's calling of Saul would be affirmed by different signs. There were some things that were about to go down in Saul's experience that would affirm this calling and say, look, this word I'm giving you, it is truly God's 
word. And so from 2 to 10, there's this, there's great prophetic detail about these signs that would be fulfilled for him to be to affirming Saul as king. Now, as you read through verses 2 through 10, I'm not going to read that whole portion, but if you read through it, you're going to see meticulous detail. Very meticulous, specific details are named and and you get become clear that, okay, this is certainly the Lord affirming his anointing of Saul. This isn't like going to a palm reader at a mall uh, who speaks in such general terms and in such generalities that, that, that it could apply to anyone at any time. No, these, these affirming signs that Saul is going to see are detailed in such a way so that Saul would be left without a shadow of a doubt that the Lord was calling him and anointing him to be king. So there were three in particular. One, there's a sign that pops up at Rachel's grave. Samuel says, look, at Rachel's grave, you're going to see two men who will come, and they're going to tell you that the donkeys you've been searching for have been found, and, and now your dad's worried about you. You're going to have that conversation with a couple of men. And then he shifts to a place called the Oak of Tabor, and he says there, you're going to meet three men, and one man's going to be carrying three goats. One of them is going to have two loaves three loaves of bread, then another is going to be carrying a jar of wine. They're on their way to Bethel where they would worship the Lord. He said, but they're going to give you two of the loaves of bread. Not all of them, just two of them. And, and this was a way for Saul to see that these elements that were going to Bethel, they were going there to in, in worship and in service of the Lord. And, and the fact that these men would give Saul two of these loaves of bread, it was a way of saying, look, this role that you have as king, it's being grafted into the leadership trifecta of the people of Israel. You've already heard of priests and prophets anointed offices amongst Israel, and now we're going to add king to that. And so the king is going to come in and be that. That sign is going to take place at the Oak of Tabor. And then you're going to come to a place called Gibeah, where there is a garrison or a, or a troop of the Philistine army and the Philistine people. And there you're going to connect with a traveling band of prophets, and the Lord is going to come upon you, and you are going to experience God's presence in a way that you've not experienced before. And then you get to verse 9, and this is what happens. When Saul turned around to leave Samuel, after hearing about these signs that he would see, we're told that God changed his heart, and all the signs came about that day. In meticulous detail, the Lord affirmed Saul's calling and anointing to be king. Now, here's the point for you and I. What you find in this pattern, from anointing to affirmation, from calling to signs and confirmation, what you find there is a pattern that you will pick up on all throughout the scriptures and all throughout the history of the church. And that is, every calling that someone receives, it will be confirmed in one way or another by God's people. Any calling you have to serve the kingdom of God, any calling that God bestows upon you to be about what Jesus is about in the world, any calling will be confirmed by God's people. You can expect confirmation and affirmation to come. So you have a calling, or perhaps you're sensing a calling to plant a church, or you're sensing a calling to serve Jesus cross-culturally as a missionary. Or you're sensing a calling to start some new ministry initiative in our church or in our city. Or you're sensing a calling even to adopt a child or to get married. And you have this, expect, this sense that the Lord is getting ready to do something in your life. Every calling will be confirmed by God's people. 
which is why we want to walk in community. We want to live in community. We want to be talking about what the Lord is doing within us and not shielding other people from the desires that are swelling up within our lives or the things that God may be putting on our hearts to do. We want to talk about those because every calling will be confirmed by God's people. And so we open our mouths and we talk about what the Lord is doing, even if we feel a little gun-shy about doing so. I remember when the Lord called me to pastoral ministry to preach and to teach, I was very gun-shy. I didn't want to tell anyone. I didn't want to tell people because I was afraid they might think I was crazy because at that time I was 21 years old and, and I had never spoken publicly before and any opportunity I was given to do so I walked away from. I was deathly afraid of standing before groups of people like this and addressing them with words coming out of my mouth. It just wasn't something that I could do, yet I was sensing the Lord calling me in this direction. And, and with this calling came confirmation and affirmation from people in my life who began to sense the same thing and they would nudge me and encourage me and push me really in a direction that I was hesitant to go in. I needed the confirmation of my calling to come from other people. And by God's grace, it did. And by God's grace, the same can be said of you. So as you are sensing the Lord calling you to do things in service of the kingdom of God, be in the context of community where that confirmation and affirmation can come. But then the second pad aspect to this that you see in this text is not only is every calling confirmed by God's people, but every calling is accompanied by God's spirit. The Lord will not call you to do something that he himself will not equip you to do. This is Saul's experience. He's saying, look, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And the Spirit of the Lord does fall upon Saul in a way that causes him to prophesy and to speak words that, that says, look, he's, he's anointed. Look, he's, he, he's, the, something's changing about this guy Saul. And, and the Spirit of God accompanies him in his calling. And and the callings that you and I receive, the ways in which the Lord leads us to serve him, we, can, we might be hesitant because we're insecure. We might be hesitant because we feel inadequate. But every time God calls someone to do something, his spirit is going to accompany them and empower them and energize them and enable them to do the things that they are called to do. Now, this is good news when you think about kind of those long-term callings for me to be a pastor and to serve Jesus in this capacity. For others of you who may have other long-term callings, to, to be a mother, to be a friend, to be this employee at a certain, uh, in a certain business or whatever the case may be, these roles and positions that you have, you have the, we have these long-term dynamics, but it's also true for the short-term dynamics in our lives. For we know that as followers of Jesus living on this side of the resurrection, that we have the Holy Spirit at all times and and that we, have all, we all share the same calling to make disciples of all nations, to, to advance the gospel, to be Christ's ambassadors. We all share that same calling. And, and as we seek to do so in a myriad of ways, the Holy Spirit is empowering us and energizing us to do so. And, and when we are living with that awareness, all of a sudden those mundane moments hold the potential of becoming something marvelous and extraordinary. All of a sudden those mundane search for donkeys can lead you to moments where you have an exchange with someone that is not only life-giving to you, but is life-giving to them. And so we think about this the next time we go to the grocery store and we think we're just going to get potatoes. 
and some mundane search for potatoes that we're going to get for dinner, then all of a sudden we find ourselves in a conversation with someone, crossing paths with a person who may be hurting or struggling or stressed, and and we have an opportunity to love them in Jesus' name and to pray over them, with them, for them, to speak the gospel to them in ways that would be effective. And all of a sudden, a mundane search for potatoes becomes something marvelous and extraordinary, not only in your experience of the Lord as the Spirit enables you to do things in service of the kingdom, but a marvelous moment for those that you are serving and blessing and loving and and paying attention to and seeing and hearing as you interact with them. And so every calling is to be confirmed by God's people and every calling will be accompanied by God's spirit so we can step into our callings with a humble confidence that the Lord is with us and that the Lord is for us. So you consider this affirmation that Saul receives, and he really needs it because in the very next passage, he's antagonized. Not long after he's anointed and affirmed, he meets this moment of antagonism that comes in verses 11 through 13. We see that his place is being questioned. Notice in verse 11 that everyone who knew him previously, those who saw Saul grow up and they were aware of him from childhood, and, and all of a sudden they see him acting like this, he's, he's prophesying, he's running with these prophets, and they, they, they know Saul really well, and so this all hits them as strange. And so they begin to question his place. They ask, is Saul also among the prophets? And it's kind of a, the, the tone of it's kind of derisive. It, we don't know if they're asking this question because they uh, just kind of commonly look down upon this traveling band of prophets. I mean, this, this time frame isn't too far removed from the period of the judges. And so people didn't really think highly of priests and prophets and, and those who represented the Lord. It was a pretty dark and difficult day to, to be faithful to the Lord. And so maybe, maybe this is a question that's, uh, may, may, maybe this group looked down or this, these people looked down on this group and they didn't think Saul should be among them because he should be better than that. Or maybe those who knew Saul best believed he didn't belong there just because they knew what his gifts were and his talents were and his skills were and thought, well, yeah, he, he, he's not one of them. But they question his place. They also challenge his pedigree. They ask the question, and who is, it? Who is their father? Referring to the prophets. Now, this question is unique, or there, there, there's some sense going on behind this question because in that day, if you were a priest, chances are your sons too would become priests. This was true of Eli and his sons. It was true of Samuel and his sons. Like they kind of followed in the footsteps of their father. And so it was believed that the same would be said of prophets, that if you were a prophet, then your children, your sons would be prophets too. And so when they asked the question, who is their father? They're saying that knowing good and well who Saul's dad is. And they know that Kish isn't a prophet. And so they're questioning his place and they're challenging his pedigree, assuming well, knowing that his dad isn't a prophet, so no way this guy Saul could be a prophet too. But then there's also a darker kind of undertone to this question. A darker undertone to this antagonism that Saul is facing is that it kind of suggests that if Saul is a prophet and his dad's not a prophet, then maybe, then maybe Saul was born in an illegitimate manner. Maybe there was some other father involved that we don't know about. And so there's a darker undertone to this question, who is their father and how they apply it in Saul's direction, where they could be questioning whether or not Kish is his dad altogether. So he's facing a lot of antagonism. 
And because he's facing a lot of antagonism, it kind of makes sense when you keep going towards the end of the passage into verse 14 and you find the king being, being aloof. That Saul is now aloof about his calling. He's not forthcoming about his conversation with Samuel. Check it out beginning in verse 14. After he returns home, Saul's uncle asked him and his servant, where did you go? To look for the donkeys, Saul answered. When we saw they weren't there, we went to Samuel. Well, tell me, Saul's uncle asked, what did Samuel say to you? And listen to what Saul said. He assured us the donkeys had been found. However, Saul did not tell him what Samuel had said about the matter of kingship. And so you come to the end of this moment and Saul, the king, is now aloof about his calling. He's not forthcoming and we don't know why. Maybe he's insecure. Maybe he's feeling inadequate. Maybe he's crumbling under the pressure of the antagonism that was just launched in his direction. But he is remaining aloof in this moment for reasons that are only known to him. And when you come to the end of this story, the question becomes, what will become of Saul? How is he going to treat his calling? How is he going to treat his position as Israel's first king? Will he treat that position as the signpost it's intended to be, to point everyone in the Lord's direction? Or will it become a tombstone? Will it become the death of Saul because he chooses self over the Lord or the kingdom of self over the kingdom of God? How is he going to treat this position? This is where this passage ends, is what will become of Saul. And, and now I want you to think about your own life. What will become of you in the positions of influence that the Lord has put you in? The Lord places his people in positions of influence so that they might serve his kingdom and be about what he is about in the world. And we can see those positions as signposts. I have an opportunity to point people towards the Lord. Or those positions can become our tombstone. They can become cul-de-sacs when they should be thoroughfares on this journey of life and become dead ends. So we want to ask ourselves, what will become of us? When you think about the various roles that you fill in this life, the various roles that you will fill as you journey through this world, whether it's the role of a friend, the role of a parent, the role of a child, whether it's the role of a, an employer or an employee, whatever the case may be, how are you going to fill your roles? Will your positions of influence define you or will they drive you? If your positions of influence define you, then you have nowhere to go beyond them. And those positions are, become, are in danger of becoming a tombstone, a cul-de-sac, a dead end. But if those positions of influence are what opportunities that drive you so that you are pointing people in God's direction, you're making the most of your moments knowing that the Spirit of God is with you and that the people of God are supporting you so that you might be everything that God has called you to be and do all the things that God is calling you to do, driving you to point people in His direction, then all of a sudden your position of influence becomes what it's intended and designed by God to be. So we want to think about the positions of influence that we have and we want to treat them as signposts. We don't want to say, okay, my vision of the good life is, is to get married. Then all of a sudden you get married and then the question is, now what? And then perhaps your vision of the good life, well, it's to have kids. You have kids, okay, you have kids, now what? 
And then your vision of the good life is forced to change. Well, I've got to raise them, okay? You, you raise your kids. Now what? They, they've moved out the house. Now what is your life about? And then you think, okay, well, I've got to regroup. I've got to recalibrate. What is my life going to be about? There's no common thread holding everything together. I'm, I'm just being different people about different purposes and different stages and phases of life. And, and then all of a sudden you find yourself an empty nester and you're looking around. Now what is my life about? And so you think, okay, well, I'm going to retire and I'm going to play golf and I'm going to go fishing. Okay, is that all? Is that really what you want your life to be about? Is that the legacy you want to leave behind? Or is there a way for you to find a thread connecting every phase of your life together? Every position of your life, holding it all in a coherence about the kingdom of God. So that that's the common denominator, whether you were a mom or a dad, a husband or a wife, whether you were a single person or an employee or an employee and a retiree, whether you are someone who have, has all kinds of time right now to do all kinds of things, what's holding your life in coherence is your calling to be about the kingdom of God. Serving that which matters. Saying, look, there's a lot of earthly acquisitions that, are, that have compiled in my life up to this point and will compile more in the future, but these earthly acquisitions, they are to serve eternal concerns. These are signposts designed to point people in God's direction. And the reason why we are so willing to do that as followers of Jesus is because Jesus has ultimately done this for us. One of the things about the, the role of the king and the people of Israel is that this would become a signpost anticipating in a myriad of ways the true kingship of Jesus. And you think about Jesus' life story, the, the true king who was driven by his position, who was driven by the influence that the Father was giving him in his purposes. He, was, he wasn't defined by them, but driven by them. You think about the pattern that unfolds in Jesus' life. It started off with his anointing. He too crossed paths with a prophet named John the Baptist, and John the Baptist would baptize him, and as he is coming up out of the waters, the Spirit of the Lord would, come, that would fall upon him like a dove, and he's anointed in that moment. You know that Jesus wasn't just anointed, he was affirmed as the true king so that when he would walk through Galilee and Judea performing signs and wonders, all kinds of miracles, the heavenly father was confirming him as king, affirming him as the Messiah, affirming him as the one that the world has been waiting for for so long to come and make everything right. But then you think about Jesus and the antagonism he faced, you know Jesus was antagonized. People questioned his place. It was wondered, can, people asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth, which was the place that Jesus was raised? It was queried where they asked the question, well, well, no prophet is welcome in his hometown as they thought about Jesus. His place was questioned. His, his pedigree was challenged. Everything was antagonized in Jesus' upbringing and as he journeyed through his life in this world. But not only was Jesus antagonized, but there's a sense in which, and this might strike you as strange, but there's a sense in which Jesus too was aloof. There's a sense in which Jesus himself was not forthcoming about his full identity and not forthcoming about what he was about in this world. You find this really in the Gospel of Mark when he would perform a miracle and somebody would recognize, hey, you're the Messiah, and he would say, shh, don't tell anybody yet. 
And the reason he would be aloof in that moment we would learn later is because he was operating according, a time, according to a timetable that the Father had set for him. And if word got out that he was the Messiah, that he was the God-man coming to set things right, people might try to drive him to the cross before his time had come. And so often in the book of Mark, Jesus is aloof about who he is, and he's a bit aloof and not forthcoming about his role as the Messiah you get into the Gospel of John and you see it probably more clearly where he kept talking about he kept talking about an hour. And he would tell people time and time again, my hour has not yet come. Until you get to John chapter 12 and he says, my hour has come. It is here. It is time for me to be glorified, which means in John's Gospel, it was time for him to be crucified. So there was a sense in which Jesus was aloof too. That is until it was time for him to die. And the very purpose of for his presence in the world would come to fruition. And Jesus would be crucified and then soon placed in a tomb. But the good news of the gospel is that that tombstone was rolled away. And when that tombstone was rolled away, we see a sort of a reversal between Jesus and between us. You see, our sign, signposts of creation tend to become tombstones when we are defined by them. But for Jesus, quite literally, his tombstone became the greatest signpost that exists in the history of humanity of the reality of God and his kingdom. His tombstone was rolled away and King Jesus stepped forth and his full identity was disclosed to the disciples. He ascended and took his seat at the right hand of the throne of the Father where he rules and reigns, awaiting to return, where he will then establish his kingdom fully and finally for all of God's people to enjoy as we step into God's place and we enjoy God's presence in an unhindered capacity, all because Jesus' tombstone became the greatest signpost for the kingdom of God that exists in the world. And because of that dynamic, we are free to live allowing our signposts to be signposts, pointing people to the reality of Jesus and the greatness of his kingdom so that we could be about what God is about in the world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for all that he lived for, died for, and rose from the grave for. God, we thank you for the empty tomb and the signpost that it is for our lives that say, okay, now I want, I want you to go and make your life count because anything you do in light of the resurrected Christ will not be in vain. And so we hear 1 Corinthians 15, 58 in this moment, always abound in the work of the Lord, for you know that your labor in the Lord will not be in vain. It will not be without purpose. It will not be without point. Why? Because you, Jesus, are alive and well. You are resurrected. And every investment we make in your kingdom, it will not return void or vain. It will accomplish the purposes for which you have envisioned. And so God, give us grace to make the most of our positions of influence. Give us grace to be about your kingdom as we journey through this world en route to the world that is to come. We love you, God, and we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.